0: All right, a lot has changed in the last two uh, sessions here. This has all been the controversy over the king. Israel had the opportunity to receive the king and the messianic kingdom with it in first in the first century, and first century Israel chose to reject the king, and so the kingdom was postponed. And his ministry took on a different flavor because it has a different purpose from that point until the cross. So the things to keep in mind here is that Jesus has just been rejected as the Messiah, and so the kingdom was also rejected, and his ministry is different. We're going to see another way tonight in which his ministry is different than before. And we start with Jesus' demonstration of his messianic power. This is not anymore for the purpose of bringing Israel to the point of making a decision about his messiahship, but it is instead for training his apostles. He's going to do many miracles similar to what he did in the first year of his ministry, trying to get Israel to make a decision about him, But here we're going to get more detail about these miracles because the apostles are learning something specific about each one of these miracles. And so they are recorded uh, for us to learn from as well. The very first one takes place on the same day of his rejection. It says here in Mark 4.35, right after he teaches in parables, that on that day when evening came, They got into boats, and Jesus says, let's go to the other side. Now, the other side is Gentile territory. It's between uh, the Decapolis and Tiberius. It is in the the region of Gadara. can't find it here. In the region of Gadara in the town of Gesera. I have it written down here somewhere. But anyways... On their way, a fierce gale of wind picks up over the sea. Now, this isn't uncommon in the Sea of Galilee. It's surrounded on either side by high hills on the east and on the west. And so wind would come down and mix in the basin of the Sea of Galilee and stir up quite a storm. But the disciples seem to think that this is a different kind of storm. Most of them are weathered fishermen, and they've never experienced anything quite like this. In fact, they are afraid for their lives. Jesus, on the other hand, is in the bow of the ship, asleep. Now this isn't that surprising. This is probably the most stressful day of his entire ministry up until this point. He is in the body of a man, having taken on flesh like us, and he is probably worn out and exhausted. But they go and wake him up. The storm gets that bad, they think they're about to die, and they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now this is a bit of an emotional response, and it seems rather accusatory as well. It's 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 as if they are frustrated that he is not as upset as they are, that his faith isn't wavering like theirs is. Jesus is in full control still. And so he wakes up and rebukes the wind, and he says to the sea, hush, be still, and the wind dies down and it becomes perfectly calm. Interestingly enough, these two verbs together are only used in one pattern elsewhere in the Gospels. And they are only used with animate objects, not inanimate forces of nature. So when he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the sea hushes, he is doing the same thing to the forces of nature as he does when he exercises a demon. In Mark 1.25, Jesus rebukes the demon and he says, be quiet and come out of him. And then the man is thrown into convulsions and the unclean spirit cries and with a loud voice comes out. In Luke 4.35, another exorcism, Jesus rebukes the demon, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing any harm to it. This is the pattern that Jesus uses for exercising demons, for exercising control over demonic forces. Jesus' ministry from this point forward is not about the kingdom It's about the cross, and Satan is exercising all powers in his belt in order to keep Jesus from the cross. On the very first day of the new phase of his ministry, Satan attempts to kill Jesus, and it does not succeed by any means. In fact, Jesus coolly and calmly rebukes this demonic storm, and the sea calms. He then asks his disciples, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Now, in English, this is misleading. It seems like a contradiction. Jesus asks them why they're afraid, and their response is to become afraid. In English, we have one word for this. In Greek, there are two. The Greek word for fear from a lack of faith or cowardly fear, is delos. That is not the kind of fear that they had in response to what Jesus said. That fear was phobeo, the verb, which means awesome fear. They respected Jesus. The question that they had in their mind then was, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus is teaching the disciples in this phase of his ministry. And here they see that there's much to learn about Jesus. Maybe they don't know everything about him quite yet. Once they land on the other side, they are in the province of Gadara, which there's also a town called Gadara. That is not where they landed. They landed in a town called Gerasa. And so they came to the other side of the sea. Now they are in Gentile territory in the country of the Gerizines. And when they got off the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Here we get the first large description or descriptive uh, account of what a demonized man looks like. Now this comes at the perfect point in these gospel accounts, because Jesus himself has just been accused of being demonized. In fact, of being controlled by a demon to the point that he is able to cast out other demons. He is controlled by a very powerful demon, is the accusation of the Pharisees. And so Jesus brings his disciples across the sea into Gentile territory, probably to the most demonized man in all of the area to show them just what that looks like and it looks nothing like Christ in fact everything about this man is contradictory to the man Jesus Christ here he is dwelling among the tombs Jesus raises people from the dead there is no one able to bind him even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles were broken to pieces. He's uncontrollable. He cannot be tamed. He can't be subdued. On the other hand, Jesus subdues himself. Jesus is in full control of his mind and his body. This man goes around constantly, night and day, screaming among the tombs and the mountains and gashing himself with stones there could not be a starker difference between any two beings, this demonized man and Jesus Christ. And when this demonized man sees Jesus, the demon within him knows that there is a difference. He knows that there is no friendship between these two. When he sees him from a distance, he runs up and he bows down, worshiping before him, not because they're on the same side, but because he is the creator. He shouts with a loud voice, what business do we have with each other? We're not friends. We're not from the same house. We're not from the same party. Jesus, you son of the most high God. This demon understands who Jesus is and understands that this is no man possessed by a demon. He is the son of God himself. Now here, unlike on the Jewish side of the lake, Jesus does not tell the demon to be quiet. The demon is not a trustworthy witness at this point still. He's not admitting him as a witness. But the purpose of silencing the demons on the other side was so that Israel did not accept him on the basis of the, uh, of the demon's witness, but on God's witness. And so here, there is no longer a need to silence these demons. They have already rejected the witness of God but this demon implores him not to torment him in Luke's account hope oh, I didn't keep this in Luke's account he asks if he is going to torment him before the time before the appropriate time this demon understands his ultimate doom he understands that he has no hope, but he also knows that this is not yet the time of the end. He understands that it is not Jesus' time to cast the demons away forever. Jesus asks this demon, what is his name? This is the same pattern that the Pharisees would use for casting out demons. Jesus, remember, does not need to receive the name from a demon in order to gain authority over it. He already has authority over it. But he asks this demon his name probably for another reason. Because this demon's name is Legion, which is a technical term for an army of three to 6,000. There are three to 6,000 demons in this man. We'll see that eventually he will cast them into 2,000 pigs, which means there was at least one in each pig and probably more in multiple of them. Jesus is showing his power over this demon. He does not invoke the demon's name in gaining authority over it, but he simply casts them out. Jesus is powerful over a legion of demons. I think this is also very, would be a very colorful demonstration to the apostles who had heard the last clear teaching from Jesus when Israel rejected them and it came in the form of a judgment on Israel. That they had been swept clean and prepared for the king by John. And Jesus used the analogy of a demon, which when it is cast out, if nothing comes in and fills it, it will bring back seven friends along with it. Here we have a demonized man with 6,000 demons in him. He brought back quite a few friends. Israel's judgment is that they will be controlled by even greater forces now that they have not received the kingdom. Jesus gives them a visceral demonstration of what multiple demon possession looks like. And now they ask Jesus not to cast them away into the abyss. The abyss is a technical term referring specifically to the bottomless pit. Before the resurrection of Christ, there was only Sheol. Whether good or bad, you went to Sheol. But Sheol had multiple compartments in it. Sheol itself was not hell. But within Sheol was paradise and hell, as well there is the bottomless pit, there is Tartarus also. The one destiny for those righteous dead is paradise. We see this with Jesus on the cross when he tells the thief hanging on another cross that today he will be with him in paradise. Jesus, when he died, descended into the paradise section of Sheol into the bosom of Abraham. And he preached to those in paradise the good news that the resurrection had been, or that the uh, atonement had been made. And he preached across the gulf to those in hell that their destiny had been sealed, that he had accomplished the atonement on the cross. The Tartarus section is a permanent abode for those angels which sinned in the days of Noah. They've been locked there since that time, and they will not be let out. The abyss is similar to hell, but it is specifically for demons. This is where demons who have been cast out of this earth dwell, and they will remain there until just before the midpoint of the tribulation the last seven years of this world's history. They will be released onto the earth. So these demons are asking Jesus not to bind them up in the abyss until the last few years of world history. They would like to remain on the earth. For an unknown reason, Jesus grants their request. We're not told why. There are many hypotheses as to why. None of them have satisfied me, so I'm not going to teach any of them to use as what I believe, because I don't believe any of them. I don't believe he cast them into pigs specifically, because pigs are not kosher, because Jesus is on the Gentile side of the lake. There is no law against pigs on the Gentile side of the lake. But, not surprisingly, this really upset the pig farmers. They didn't care that this demonized man who had been plaguing the area was now cured, fully clothed, which was a plus, and passively sitting beside Christ. They looked at this and they didn't care. They said, Jesus, get out of our region. Not surprising. But this man asks Jesus, this man who is indwelled by legion and is now cured, of his demon possession, asks Jesus if he can accompany him. He wants to go with Jesus. He wants to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus does not let him. This uh, is not very understandable if you don't understand the different phases of Jesus' ministry on earth. At this point, he is not admitting Gentiles as disciples. His ministry is to Israel. And until his resurrection, he does not extend this ministry beyond Israel. However, he does tell this man to go home and report everything that happened. The message can spread throughout Israel, but he will not accept disciples from those who are not among Israel. And so this man proclaims what happened to him by the hand of Jesus in all of Decapolis. Now next week when we come back, we are going to see an event called the feeding of the 4,000. We get to see the fruit of this demoniac's witness. These 4,000 that accumulate to hear Jesus were the fruit of his proclamation that Jesus had cured him of these 6,000 demons. Because the farmers had asked him to leave, he does so. His only purpose in crossing the lake was to bring his disciples to this demoniac and show them his power over these demons and that he himself surely cannot be demon-possessed. When he returns, he encounters a man named Jairus. He is a synagogue official. He is a leader in Israel but he is one who has faith in Jesus as the Messiah. He falls at his feet, an act of worship, and he asks Jesus to come cure his daughter who is about to die. His daughter is about 12 years old. He says, please come lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. He is demonstrating his faith by stating that he believes Jesus can cure his daughter. So Jesus, on the basis of compassion and the faith of this man, not to produce faith, but because faith already exists, agrees. And he begins to walk in that direction with Jairus. And it says that the crowds are squeezing in on him. He is probably being pressed on all sides by all these men. And yet he notices someone touch him. His disciples reasonably wonder why he is being so specific or, yeah, they say, everyone's touching you, essentially. What do you mean, who touched me? But Jesus specifically felt one person who touched the rim of his robe, which would be the tassels that hang off of the Jewish male's robes, and he felt a bit of power go from him. This woman was a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, the same length of time as Jairus' daughter had been alive. This hemorrhage made her ceremonially unclean. So for 12 years, she had been essentially an outcast in society. It says that she endured much at the hands of many physicians. Dr. Luke leaves this out of his account, perhaps for professional courtesy. and she had spent all of her money trying to find a cure. She was not helped at all, but rather her hemorrhaging had grown worse. Now, in order to understand what it means that she endured much at the hands of the physicians, I have five different remedies that the physicians of that day would use for a hemorrhaging woman. One was drinking a mixture of wine, gum of Alexandrium, Alum and a crocus while the physician stands over you and says arise from your flux now if this doesn't work they can try another one drinking a purge of onions boiled in wine while the physician says arise from your flux now that one's bound to work but if it doesn't they put her at a crossroads have her hold a cup of wine and one physician jumps up behind her and tries to scare her. And if she's scared, then the other physician says, Arise from your flux. Then she will definitely be cured. She paid good money for this. If that doesn't work, which is really unlikely, the next step would be to drink wine boiled with a handful of cumin and a crocus while the physician says, arise from your flux. And then their last-ditch effort is digging seven ditches, burning four-year-old tree clippings while sitting over the seven ditches. while the physician says, arise from your flux. I am surprised that none of these worked. But when she touched Jesus' garments, she was instantly cured. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, this was her reasoning, that if she touched his garments, she would get well. And immediately, the flow of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction after 12 years. Now Jesus gets her attention but is actually getting his disciples' attention. He turns and asks, who touched me? This wasn't because he was curious. He looks right at the woman. But the disciples, so perturbed by his question, what do you mean who's touching you, everyone's touching you, are now watching what's happening. And he sees the woman who confesses all of this to Jesus, and Jesus then corrects her theology, teaching her something about faith and teaching his disciples something about his power over disease. He says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Touching his robe was only a demonstration of her faith. She did that because she had faith in Jesus' power to heal. It was her faith that caused her healing. This was just enough time, though, Jairus' daughter to die. They were on their way, and while Jesus is still talking with this woman, someone comes from Jairus' house to tell him, it's too late. She's dead. Stop bothering Jesus. He can't do anything now. And Jesus says to Jairus, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. In other words, don't listen to him. It's not too late. Just believe. Now, his disciples were not the only ones who just watched him heal this woman based on faith. Jairus also watched this happen. And so Jairus continues to believe that even though his daughter has died, it is not too late. And so Jesus goes to Jairus' house and takes in with him only three of his 12 disciples, just Peter, James, and John. We see that for some of his greatest miracles, he has some of the fewest disciples, and that is by design. When he gets into the house, they're all mourning, which is only natural, and it's the first stage in the death process of a Jewish person. The mourning begins, and soon the procession begins, would begin carrying her out of the house. She was freshly gone. And when Jesus comes in and sees all of them weeping, he says, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died but is only asleep. Now this is not Jesus saying that he's not about to resurrect this girl, that she has not physically died. But this is something that he is going to teach his disciples more and they will continue to teach throughout the apostolic era that for a believer physical death is not death physical death is just sleep because it does not hold you it is bound to undo the resurrection is the awakening of the dead and so this girl has faith. Not only Jairus, but this girl herself is only asleep, not dead, because she is a believer as well. But, naturally, the people in the house began to laugh at him. They watched her die. Every physical indication was that she was dead. They did not understand Jesus, but Jesus' purpose was not for them to understand him, but to teach his disciples. He puts all of these we- these uh, people out of the house and takes with him into the child's room only the father and the mother and his three chosen disciples. They enter the room where the child is. Jesus takes the little girl by the hand and says in Aramaic, Talitha, cum." Mark translates this for his Roman audience. Little girl, I say to you, get up. Do you remember that Physician's remedy for the woman in hemorrhaging was to say, woman, get up out of your flux. He didn't need to use this for the woman who was hemorrhaging. Obviously, he knows this phrase. He uses it with the little girl. Jesus tends to buck the system to show that he is not following the pattern of the physicians, the Pharisees, but he is instead operating on his own authority. Jesus tells a little girl to get up. It's as simple as that. And she gets up and begins to walk. Everyone is astounded, naturally. But Jesus does something that he hasn't done much of yet until this point in his ministry. He tells everyone there, very strictly, that no one should know about this. It is a secret And then he tells them to get the girl something to eat. He is concerned with her physical needs as well. Why is Jesus telling them to keep this a secret? Because he is not performing miracles for the purpose of bringing Israel to faith. He is performing miracles for those who already have faith on the basis of compassion. Jesus then demonstrates his power over blindness. Two blind men come up to Jesus and say to him, Have mercy on us, son of David. And he promptly ignores them. He goes into a house and these two men follow him. He's been healing everyone else. What did they say wrong? Well, they addressed him with a messianic Term. Jesus is no longer offering the kingdom, no longer offering the messianic kingdom. He heals on the basis of faith in his person as the Messiah, not the reception of the kingdom. So he asks them, now that they are in private, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they say, yes, Lord. And that is the faith that is required to receive a miracle from Jesus in the second half of his ministry. Faith in his personal deity, his personal power, his personal ability to heal. And so he touches their eyes saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith. Their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warns them see that no one knows about this, and they promptly ignore him, and they go tell everybody. It's kind of to be expected. Doesn't make it right. Then after this, Jesus heals a second mute, or a second demon causing muteness says they were going out, leaving this house where he had just healed these two blind men, and a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Obviously, they weren't present for the time he first did this, perhaps just a day or two before. But we see the Pharisees are promptly proposing their solution to this problem. But the Pharisees were saying he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. So while his disciples are traveling with him, learning from him, the Pharisees are concocting their own solutions and posing this as an alternative. And it is splitting Israel in half. And so Jesus sees the need... For another preaching tour. But this time, his apostles are going to join him. They are also going to go out and preach, and in this way, they're going to cover six times the territory. They will go out two by two. His first stop, apparently, is in his hometown of Nazareth. Now, he was already prematurely rejected there. It was not an official rejection, but we saw that they were hardened towards his message. Remember, he came in and he only read a portion of the uh, Sabbath reading, and then he declared that it had been fulfilled in him, and they tried to throw him off a cliff. I'd say it was a rejection. He hasn't been back there since. He moved his whole ministry to Capernaum. Now, he's recently rebuked Capernaum, right after the rejection, a few days before. And so he is dislocated from his ministry headquarters. He goes to Nazareth, and once again, they reject him. He goes on the morning of the Sabbath and begins to teach them in his hometown once again, and nothing has changed. They instantly say, who is this man who thinks he can teach us? They knew his upbringing. They knew the school systems in Nazareth, that they weren't that good. And they knew that Jesus didn't go on to college. He wasn't trained by any rabbis. So what gives him the right to come here and start teaching them? He's just a lowly carpenter. All of his siblings still live in Nazareth. None of them are very special. What gives him the right? And so Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. They were a little too close to the problem. They couldn't receive him because they couldn't understand who he was. They saw him as just another kid around town. The prophets were often rejected most harshly in their own hometowns. Jesus is no exception. But now Jesus makes a pronouncement based on the rejection by Nazareth. It says he could do no miracles there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And As we can understand from the context, those few sick people were those that would have personal faith in him, the remnant of Israel. They received some healing, but there were not many in Nazareth. In fact, none of his siblings at this point were even believers. And this is one of only two places in all of the scripture where it says that Jesus wondered. Jesus could almost not believe their unbelief. But this didn't stop them. He went around to the other villages and continued teaching. He uses this as a sort of pattern now to teach his disciples what they are to do in the land of Israel. He sends them out on a missionary journey because of his compassion. He looks around at the divisions in Israel, and he sees that the people are distressed, they are dispirited, and they are like sheep without a shepherd no one to guide them. They are torn between two shepherds, the Pharisees and Jesus the Messiah. And so he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And guess who goes first? Those who are just told to pray for missionaries. Those who are praying for missionaries themselves Go out as missionaries and share the word. They become these first few willing workers. And as they go and share this word, those who receive it will also share it. And so the harvest that is plentiful is reaped and also sowed. Jesus also summons his disciples and he gives them authority. Now, this is something given specifically to the apostles, not a blanket gift to all believers. He gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This is for the purpose of confirming their message, just as Jesus had used these to confirm his message in the first half of his ministry. They're given a specific mission. They are not to go to the Gentiles. They are not to go to the Samaritans. This is not yet within the parameters of the gospel message. They are specifically to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The gospel is to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. It will be extended to the Gentiles, but not before the cross. As they go, they are to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or that the kingdom has drawn near. We have to take this in light of what has just happened. The kingdom is not being offered to first century Israel, but it is being offered to the individual. The individual Jew still can enter into the kingdom, not on the basis of his blood of Abraham, but on the blood of the Messiah through faith in the Messiah a spiritual and physical seed of Abraham. He tells these disciples to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, messianic miracles even, to cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely you give. He has given them the same authority that he has. As his delegates, they do not get a lower level of authority. They go as his emissaries. Those who receive them are counted as having received the Messiah himself. They are sent on his authority. He also tells them not to take with them all of their physical needs. Don't take with you gold, silver, or copper in your money belts. Don't take with you two coats, just the shirt on your own back. You don't need two pairs of sandals. And you don't need two staffs. The work is worthy of the support. God is going to provide for their needs. They are to expect two different responses. They will either be received or they will be rejected. This happens on the level of the individual, on the level of the household, and on the level of the city or town. It says to go into whatever city or village they enter and inquire who is worthy in it and to stay in his house until you leave that city. They are looking for individuals to receive this message of the kingdom. And when they enter into this household of one who is worthy, that is one who has faith in the Messiah, they are not to go out and find a better house to stay in. They are to receive whatever is given to them in this house. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Having stayed in this house, they will be able to observe, are they actually believers or are they not? Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. In other words... This is, or actually this is a symbol of judgment. They are to essentially wipe their hands of that city. They are not to concern themselves any longer within it. They are to get out and move to the next city. It says that for those, those who receive this instead of the blessing of the apostles, for them it will be, or it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, in the days of judgment then for that city they just like israel the rest of israel have received enough witness to believe they have the entire canon of the hebrew scriptures and they have the entire first year of the ministry of jesus christ if they cannot receive that they have received enough revelation they cannot then receive the apostles on the basis of jesus authority the miracles that they produce they do not get more revelation, but they are held accountable for the revelation that they have received. The disciples are also to expect persecution. Jesus tells them they are going out like sheep among wolves. This is obviously a dangerous situation for them. They are to be shrewd or wise as snakes, and they are to be as innocent or harmless as doves. In other words, they are to be wise in avoiding getting in situations where they come into physical danger, but if they do come into physical danger, they are not to get out of it by violence. They are to beware of those who seek to capture them. First, in the synagogues, it says that they will hand you over to courts and scourge you in their synagogues. This is a direct message about the mission that he is sending them on immediately, but he extends this a bit to a mission that they will go on after the resurrection because he includes Gentiles in this statement as well, that eventually in their mission work, they are going to be held captive by governors and kings in Gentile lands as well. This is not in the scope of this fourth preaching tour, the missionary tour of the Apostles, but it will become part of their experience after he's gone. And when they are captured, they are not to worry about what they will say. God will give them the words to say. They are his spokesmen. And now here in Matthew ten twenty-one through 22, we get two instances where it shifts from the second person to the third person. Jesus gives two principles that will be true of all believers, all of the remnant, including the apostles, and then one that is specific to this missionary tour that the apostles are about to go on. The first is that brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. There is division in the household of Israel. The family unit, which is the core unit in Israel, which is, in other instances, a nearly indivisible unit, is now divided right down the center. The second statement is that they will be hated because of his name. Now, this generally does apply to the others, but this specifically applies to the apostles here. Not all of the apostles will experience brother hating brother to death, father hating child, but in Israel generally this will be experienced. The apostles will experience specifically that they will be hated because of the name of Jesus. And then again he broadens it to the third person, speaking of the whole generation. It is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. This is in the context speaking of the judgment coming on Israel. The one who sides with Jesus might be put to death by the Jews, but he will not perish in the judgment that is coming on Jerusalem. The one who has no faith in Jesus might survive the wrath of the unbelieving Jews, but he will not survive the wrath of God on Jerusalem. And the one who has faith in Jesus but does not follow him, but instead chooses to follow the unbelieving Jews, will will find himself perishing in the judgment on Israel and entering into the kingdom because of his faith, but having no rewards to show for it. When Jesus sends them out into all these cities, he tells them that they will not finish this missionary journey before the Son of Man comes. This is probably a reference to his triumphal entry. Before it is time for him to go to death, the missionary work that he has for them will not cease. It will continue even after his death, after his resurrection, until the death of the apostles themselves. The apostles, just like Jesus, will be rejected. He uses a Kal-Wyomer teaching tactic here, which is common in Jewish teaching, to teach them if the greater, that is the teacher, is rejected, so the slaves will be rejected. If that who, or If he who is over them is rejected, the ones who are under him will also be rejected. They should not expect any different reception than Jesus has encountered. But that is not the point of this preaching tour. It's not to be accepted on a broad level, but to reach the individual in Israel. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. And if they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? They will even be rejected on the same basis as Jesus was rejected. But they are not to fear those who can put only the body to death. They are to instead fear him who is able to destroy with both body and soul in hell. Now this is not a threat from Jesus. This is not Jesus telling him that if you fail in your mission, you're going to hell. He is using, once again, a Cal-Wyomer teaching method to show them that this is, uh, or show them the difference, that if they can kill just the body, so much greater is Jesus, and this same verb that we saw earlier is used, phobo, It is a fear of or fearful respect. In fact, Jesus will tell them that they matter so much more than the sparrows that God keeps aloft in their flight. He is going to keep them aloft in their mission to Israel and then he makes a statement about the uh, results of that rejection or reception therefore everyone who confesses me before men I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven but whoever denies me before men I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven those who receive the apostles who receive the Messiah Jesus will receive them into the kingdom. Those who reject this message that the apostles are bringing to Israel will be rejected from the kingdom. He will not confess them before God because they have not had faith. The results of this ministry is that Israel will be divided. Jesus says he did not come to bring peace but to bring a sword. The result is that he is going to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemy will be the members of his household. While this is possible outside of Israel, it is the principle in Israel. This is not the necessary case outside of this specific ministry within Israel. But for one to confess Jesus as the Messiah in Israel is a heresy bar none. This will divide the house of Israel in a way that it will divide no other people group. And this sheds more light then on the prophecy in Malachi. If you remember, there were two prophecies of a forerunner, one in Malachi chapter 3 and another in Malachi chapter 4, where it was assumed that they both refer to the same one, one that would bring in preparation in Israel to receive the Messiah. Only in chapter 4 is Elijah himself named, and he comes in order to restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. This is necessary because of the first coming of the Messiah, which became... a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that many would stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken, and they will be snared and caught. This was Isaiah chapter 8, the prophecy of the two responses to the Messiah. For the remnant, Jesus would be a sanctuary, protection. For the unbelievers, Jesus would be a trap or a snare. And so it came to be. So he says then, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Again, a Cal-Wyomer method of teaching. You are not supposed to simply hate your mother and love jesus this is not what he is teaching but if you choose instead your mother over the messiah when your mother has rejected the messiah you will find yourself caught up in the judgment on jerusalem this is the message of the book of hebrews it was given to this remnant between the resurrection of christ and the judgment on jerusalem Telling them, in essence, to get out of there. Don't go back to the old ways. Don't join with the unbelievers in Israel. They are coming under judgment. You are under Christ. There is also a principle, then, of rewards. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus himself is not going to each one of these cities. Even the twelve disciples going out in groups, of, or in six groups, will not have time to completely go to every single town before it's time for Jesus to go up to the cross. But those who receive these apostles, it is as if they are receiving the Messiah himself. This is a common principle in Israel and much of the Middle East and in ancient culture. If you receive the ambassador, you are receiving. The country itself if you receive the emissary here you are receiving the Messiah himself and so he writes that whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink truly I say to you he shall not lose his reward now this is a negative positive again seems like a contradiction but this is not saying that if they don't there will be no rewards for them this is a an example that even this smallest act of kindness towards the apostles will be rewarded in the kingdom there will be rewards for the way that they treat these apostles in their towns and finally then the fulfillment of this the disciples immediately go and do exactly as Jesus told them to do. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. They all went out and began teaching. Now the last point tonight is the death of the herald. At this point, the gospel writers take the opportunity to tell us that John the Baptist has died, that he has been killed by Herod. Now, the Bible has a different record of why this occurred than secular sources like Josephus. Josephus records the party line, what was reported as the reason for John's beheading. The decided upon line was that he was a threat to the sovereignty of the reign of the house of Herod, that his disciples and his message were threatening to uh, undermine Herod. Now in scripture, we see that this actually isn't the reason. In fact, Herod kind of liked John the Baptist. He was sad when he put John the Baptist to death, but he had made a foolish promise to his uh, stepdaughter, Salome, when she came to his birthday party and danced for him and he really liked it. So he told her, I'll give you anything you want, even up to half of my kingdom. And so she goes and asks her mother, Herodias, who has a bit of a chip on her shoulder because of John the Baptist, because John doesn't really like her adultery and her incest. And so she tells her daughter, Salome, go and ask Herod for John's head on a silver platter. Now, Herod was a nominal convert to Judaism. He was uh, not supposed to be adulterously married to his brother's wife, he was not supposed to divorce his own wife in order to enter into this relationship, and he especially was not supposed to marry his niece, Herodias. This was incest. All of this went against the Mosaic law, and John was right to preach against it. If Herod was claiming to be under the law, he is to take on the full yoke of the law. Herod himself was an Edomian, not a Jew, but he took on the law. He was a proselyte. He has the responsibility to live up to the letter of the law. But to quiet the uh, conviction from John the Baptist, Herodias wants him killed. And Herod, who could renege on this oath, does not. He says, oh, well, too bad, and gives Salome John's head on a platter. And so John was killed for a personal vendetta, and the reported reason for his death was that he was a threat to the authority of the rulership. And what happens to the herald will happen to the king. Jesus will be killed because of a personal vendetta between him and the high priest. But it will be reported that he is killed because he is a threat to Rome and to Rome's sovereignty over Israel. What happens to the herald will happen to the king. The kingdom has been rejected. John's purpose was to prepare Israel for the kingdom His mission on earth is finished, and God takes him home. Actually, he is uh, waiting in Sheol for a few months, and then Jesus takes him home. Next week, Jesus continues to train his disciples. If you have the student manual, this is lessons 74 through 84. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this uh, evening. We thank you for each evening that we are able to come together and study the life of your Son, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. We thank you for his continued ministry after the rejection that he taught his disciples, that he trained them so that they could train uh, others after Christ's resurrection so that we would have the institution of the church today on the foundation of that teaching. So we thank you for this care that he extended to uh, train us how to live in light of the rejection of the kingdom. We thank you for his gift to us on the cross, that he died to bear our sins, and that we are saved forever through faith alone in Christ alone. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.